Welcome to Reroute. This is Gavin Wilhite. Today we get to speak with Eric Rogers. Eric is a researcher over at the University of Cambridge, and he has designed and organized a number of really fascinating projects over the years. One of these is called the Postwork City, where the goal is to illustrate how our cities might look in a world with less work, or at the very least with less work that we have to do and more that we want to do. Another project we'll be talking about of his is Critical Hedonisms. This explores the heart of what we want, what we desire, uh, including things around sexuality. Some of these are tricky topics, but I think they're important, and I'm really glad we got a chance to cover them here. So sit forward, listen in, and enjoy our conversation with Eric Rogers. Hi, I'm here with Eric Rogers. Hi, Eric. Thanks for joining us. Hey, yeah, coming to you from Cambridge, England, where it's raining and storming, and we've been probably having technical difficulties because of that. But I'm glad that we're we're doing this. Well, I'm glad I'm glad we're here together, and hope to send some California sunshine your way. Um, we're going to be talking about a bunch of interesting projects you've been working on today. So maybe you can start us off by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and and how you come to to work on some of these types of things. Yeah, sure. Well. Um, so I'm yeah I'm here in Cambridge England I'm a as you can hear I'm an American I'm here doing a PhD actually at the University of Cambridge I'm in the history department uh, doing American history and um, my research looks at the sort of production of sexual and social scarcity so my dissertation is largely about World War One and the way that the American military uh, leaders used sex and sexual manipulation to motivate soldiers to fight in that war. First, by making sex uh, scarce to the soldiers, by totally controlling the environments in which they lived, the war camps, then the training camps and so forth. And then by selectively uh, exposing them to either images or appeals of uh, fictionalized women or women under supervised conditions and sort of using this first scarcity of sex and then the sort of allure or promise of not sex, but sort of a proximity to sex, what I call parasexuality, to sort of motivate them to fight in the war. Um, and all this is part of a broader project, which is that I'm trying to understand artificial sources of scarcity um, in our world mm -hmm. and, um, and sort of stemming out of that broader questions about sort of aspirations that we have as a society and um, how sort of scarcities and artificial ones at that of sort of access to not just social but other resources are a big challenge for us uh, in the 21st century and something that I think we need to rethink. So um, a layer of that is desire, a layer of that is, you know, how we even design our cities to begin with. Um, so it's spatial, it's social, um, it's cultural, uh, and it's political. Absolutely. Well, these are some of the questions that oftentimes uh, don't get asked. Uh, they're either difficult to talk about or uh, they they get placed under the radar for different reasons, but it does seem like very critical questions to ask, uh, and in particular that um, the the difference that you're painting between there, there's a bunch of things that we can push towards more and or less and less scarcity, uh, more and more abundance, um, and we have been, and then there's also places where there's kind of competition over resources, or they seem like they're maybe like intractably scarce. And uh, looking into like what fits into both of those and how we redefine those categories seems really interesting. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you think about what the most problematic aspects of maybe the current ways that we either look at or utilize 
uh, desire and pleasure uh, and sort of maybe where you see that, you know, heading down dark, dark paths or dark trajectories. Yeah, let me just say your point about um, there are some scarcities that I think that, that you know, are just a, they're a material fact. And I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, we're facing mm. our ecological crisis. And this is something that we need to take very, very seriously um, is actual scarcities that we're coming up against. Um, and I suppose for me, this feels like the best time ever really to think about all those ways in which we are wasting, um, resources or failing to produce, um, abundance and, and, and yet using a ton of resources at, um, along the way. So I, I, I often say of sort of American suburban development, I should say my, my background prior to, to doing this history work was in architecture and architectural history, uh, and urban history. Uh, and I often like to say of American suburbia that, you know, we use so many resources to do so little. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that that applies yeah, pretty long. Right, exactly. And that's, that applies not just to, you know, urban development, to, but to many other aspects of our social um, and cultural existence. And so, um, yeah, I think this is going to be a, a, probably something that we're going to return to no, a, number, uh, a number of times um, as, as we discuss the projects. Um, there's a yeah, second part absolutely. of the question. Yeah, so I was asking about... Um, uh, where, where uh, we might be taken down bad paths, or where we might be misled, or or where we might uh, end up that we don't want to end up if we continue to kind of look at the uh, the question of what do we want, what do we desire, you know, sort of moving forward through the twenty first century here. Yeah, and and to add to that, you know, what what don't we want that maybe we should want? <laughs> I mean, I think part of the problem, oh, yeah. ways I'm trying to frame. Um, this project of critical hedonisms is um, that we perhaps want things that we that are that are bad for us, um, and we perhaps don't want things that are good for us uh, in the longer mm -hmm. term and so forth. And uh, this is one of the reasons why I'm so interested in questions of manipulation and motivation, because you know, during World War One, for example, you're able mm -hmm. to get people to want to rush off into a war that had little to do with the United States. Um, that, that these soldiers certainly didn't understand the geopolitics of and to feel like it was in their best interest to do so. Um, and so I think, you know, in thinking about manipulation um, and, and motivation together, uh, we're able to, to really tackle a really tricky problem, which is like what happens when people want the wrong things or want things that are mm -hmm. bad for them. Um, and so critical hedonisms, one of the things it's trying to do is just trying to be critical about the sources of our pleasure and, um, mm -hmm. And the ways that we engage in our in our desires, um, and a part of that is also about trying to think about how we might distribute care and pleasure um, a bit more intentionally. Um, you know, for the for the current context we find ourselves in in the twenty first century, cultural, political, economic, and so forth. Um, which is also, I guess, a, it's not just a question of the distribution of um, uh, um, abundance, but it's also a question of the distribution of, of scarcity and how we how we want to sort of uh, distribute the scarcities that I think we're starting to feel ecological and so forth. Um, but I think this this requires remaking our desires and our aspirations, because whatever template of the good life we've been operating as as a culture and as a society, mm -hmm. you know, we have to sort of roadmap for how how to live or, or make a good life for ourselves. It's outdated. Um, and retrograde. And, and I think we need a, a new map and a new vision. Um, but but to do that, it involves, and I think we'll talk about aspects of this, lots and lots of reconfigurations. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it feels, you know, I, I've seen this in my personal life a little bit. There was, uh, 
there was a actually uh, there was a there's a point in time where I was working for Disney and I felt like I'd kind of uh, maxed out what society had laid out as far as goals. You know, I had the good job, I had gotten the good grades. And so it was like, okay, well, what's next, right? And it's just like, okay, well, maximize pleasure, like play video games, you know, as much as you want to, like eat the food that you want to, you know, go try to date as many people as you can. Like, uh, and it, it very quickly became clear that this was just not very interesting. Like you can try to maximize your hedonism. And I think about this when I think about like billionaires and stuff, right? You're like, yeah, you get diminishing returns and like, do you eat like, is that life even that much better than just once you have, you know, if you're making, you know, $100,000 or whatever it is, right? Maybe you're meeting some sort of threshold and you're having good community and stuff. Like, is it really that much better to just be absolutely optimizing around how much pleasure you can have in life? You know, and it, uh, it's interesting that we get to ask those questions now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry to, yeah. sorry to cut you off. Oh, please um, continue. Yeah. But yeah, I think the, the part of the problem is that these billionaires aren't trying to accumulate pleasure. They're trying to accumulate power and status mm. and wealth. Um, you know, the world might be better if they were a bit more hedonistic in their decisions, you know. Um, and Interesting. You, hear, you hear sometimes about some of the billionaires and um, how they live their lives. And a lot of the time it's quite, um, they have quite ascetic um, practices because, you know, in order to sort of run a bunch of companies or whatever, you kind of need to have a whole bunch of discipline and so forth. And, um, so, so it's an interesting blend, I guess, between, you know, having and flaunting wealth and power. And on the other hand, um, you know, needing to be in that sort of Protestant work ethic mindset of, of running, you know, fortune 500, 500 companies or whatever. But, um, but I think at the core of what you're getting at is a really good question, which is, you know, what's even the point of, you know, destroying resources and exploiting the planet and so forth and having all this inequality if uh, if that development isn't really getting us a lot. And uh, I recently heard a really interesting podcast episode where they said that um, we're getting a really bad return on our investment for um, for our inequality, that you're supposed to get certain things. You know, inequality is meant to be a compromise that you get certain returns on. And we're not even getting those returns yeah. anymore. So what is the point? Um but yeah, I just want to touch on development specifically because um, when we talk, you know, when when people tend to talk about like how do we improve society, how do we make things better, whatever, it usually ends up being a conversation about how do we develop uh, certain parts of the world that haven't developed yet, and we mean a particular thing by that. Um, and in, you know, in the face of mounting ecological problems and inequality and so forth, we need to rethink what it means to develop, especially because, as you point out, you know, people attaining the sort of middle class template of life, you know, suburban life or whatever, um, isn't actually making people happy. Um, so yes, we need to, you know, lift people out of poverty. I mean, billions of people in poverty. Um, but at a certain po point, as, as you point out, you know, the, the effects of development taper off, uh, at least in our current conception of development. So I think rather than thinking about development as being sort of animated by this shallow idea of, you know, wealth and accumulation and luxury, you know, having access to luxury goods and other sort of vacuous and isolating artifacts, um, we should think about it more, I think, socially and, and culturally. Because um, as you're aware, you know, we don't necessarily have an overpopulation problem. That's not really why we're, we're up against the environmental mm -hmm. problems we have. We have a rich and middle class people problem. Um, and if the goal is to bring the whole world's poor into the middle class, uh, so that everyone can have the suburban house and three cars and frequent vacations and, you know, golf resort lifestyle, then we're totally doomed. But fortunately, I think we, there's a better way. Um, and the question is, what is that way? And, and how do we get there? 
Um, and, and that's a sort of, I think it's not just a political question, but it, it's, or, or just a personal question. It's really a tr sort of a trans personal question. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? Because I, uh, and I, I, I find myself sometimes in the minority on this, at least in San Francisco circles, but you know, I, I do like pushing for technological solutionism as far as, uh, you know, certain scarce resources in relation to climate change uh, is concerned. But at the same time, on any of these problems, you always have both how do we sort of like address this from a uh, like reduction of harm uh, or how do we address this from a, you know, reduction of consumption or reduction of, of, of sort of uh, impact, uh, negative impact upon the world. And that second one does seem 100% aligned with the question of what do we want? What do we desire uh, collectively and individually? Yeah, As someone who spent a lot of time, you know, in Silicon Valley, um, it often felt like people were solving a lot of problems that didn't need to be solved and not solving the problems that we really did need to solve. Interesting. Um, and, you know, as you know of technology, it, it, um, it does what we ask it to do. And if we're asking it to do shallow things like, I don't know, dynamic face filters for, you know, um, uh, you know, photo apps or whatever, social media, then that's what it's going to do. Um, but, you know, if you ask it to maximize profits, that's what it's going to do. If you ask it to save labor, that's mm -hmm. what it's going to do. And I think there's really radical potential in a lot of things we're developing now and a lot of the technologies we're seeing come online. The question is sort of what modality are we going to employ those technologies? And, um, and I think we can we can mm -hmm. ask our technology to solve better problems. Uh, I think we should. You know, one of the things that was occurring to me as you were talking about this is, you know, when, when I sort of had my own personal journey away from just being purely hedonistic, I, you know, I looked back a little bit towards how people think about these questions in the past. And uh, recently I've been really keen on stoicism and I know the cynics had some useful ideas on these things. How, like, have you looked um, historically to see how people have uh, looked at, you know, what is the good life? What is the enjoyable life? Uh, and, and if there's any lessons we can bring from there? Yes, I have. And, um, and not as deeply as I would have liked to. I mean, you know, I, I'm a historian, but I, I mostly dwell in the 20th century. Um, and there's a particular reason for that. Um, I do. It's true. The Greeks had amazing things to say, especially Aristotle, about hedonism and his sort of critique, you know, of hedonism. Um, and this is true also of some of the um, early sort of Christian theologians, um, Augustus and so forth. And uh, I've definitely gotten a chance to look at some of those things. I must say that... Um, they were they were operating under different conditions than we are, um, and this is where technology comes in in a really interesting and, and meaningful way. Um, there were times in history where the only ethical way to be was extremely puritanical, because you were living in a, extreme conditions of scarcity, and to have abundance meant that you were exploiting slaves, basically, or or wage slaves. Um, we are at a level of technological advancement where that is that is less true. Uh, and it's becoming less and less true uh, the further and further we develop. Um, and this relates to a really amazing, I think, interesting theory uh, posited by a guy named Herbert Marcuse. He was part of the Frankfurt School, these sort of critical theorists from Germany who came over in the 30s uh, to escape uh, the Third Reich. Uh, anyway, he, he had this concept of surplus repression. And for him, uh, he was responding to Freud. So Freud had this idea that... Um, and this is in civilization and its discontents, basically, that, you know, you can't 
you can't have civilization without some degree of repression that in order for us to live together, you got to curb certain people's desires uh, in order to keep things sort of sociable and functional, right? Maybe familiar with this idea and I'm sure your listeners are. Well, Herbert Marcuse comes along and says, yes, but Freud, you have to historicize those conditions. And so what, what is necessary to repress in 1750 is not the same thing as it's not the same degree, I guess, as, as in 1950, which is around when he was writing. Uh, and indeed today in 2020, it's even, it's, it's changing more. Um, and the reason that that changes is because of technology. So technology makes it possible to get more things for less effort, basically. Um, and, and that means that the landscape in which you are sort of um, encountering your repression um, to your desires is different. Um, and so what, what he called surplus repression was the amount in excess of your current level of technological development that you're, you're having to repress your desires in order to live in a current society. And the main source of surplus repression for him was inequality and waste. And so I think uh, those are two things that are not inherent to uh, to our material or technological condition. Those are social and cultural and political facts that can be overcome. Uh, but they do call for. Let me, let me make sure if I understand there. Yeah. yeah. So so he was saying that um, uh, that inequality was uh, was it sort of unnecessary as part of that, or help me understand how that is uh, connected to that concept. Yeah, I should say inequality in hierarchy. So. Um, well, yeah, let's just take a let's t- take a really obvious example. If some people in your society have billions and billions of dollars, right? Um, mm-hmm. And you're in a rich society, uh, like, oh, I don't know, the United States. <laughs> uh, sure. And you have tons of poor people who are poor because they don't have access to those resources, right? The, the resources in other hands. Um, they're going to live mm-hmm. a much more repressed and likely repressive lifestyle. I um, see. Right, they're going to have less access to enjoyment, and I don't want to make this about the redistribution of wealth. I think that's a really important project that lots of people have done a lot of really interesting and amazing thinking on, and uh, and I don't want it to define the scope of what I'm talking about here. um, There, I think there are other. So this this question of waste, I guess, and artificial scarcity feels to me like uh, a um, a fruitful, underdeveloped, and um, additional horizon, I guess, to, to thinking about these problems. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Well, it does take me back to that question of because uh, so it seems like you know if we if we manage to sort of sort out our coordination problems, we can get to uh, low scarcity amongst many many things. It, it feels like maybe the ones that are left are like land uh, slash housing and like relationships. Are are there sort of like more things there? Or how do you think about the things that are kind of uh, the category of things that are sort of fundamentally limited there? Sure. Um, I would add not just space, but also time. Um, mm, yes, that makes sense. You'll notice, you know, we live in this weird time where um, people with money don't have any time and people with time don't have any money. Um, so that that feels like an issue. Um, and, you know, m- money gets you access to space as well. So so there's that there's that question as well. And, and by the way, I don't think people need more space per se. In fact, somewhere like the United States, and, and this is a more spatial question than a than a social or, or sexual question. I hope we can talk about the social and sexual dimensions of this um, in particular. Sure. Uh, but, you know, in the United States, I think we have too much space and, and we're kind of drowning in space. Uh, this is the, what Alan Berger calls the drosscape. Um, he, it's in his amazing book of aerial photography where he just shows how much we waste space in America, yet somehow we have a housing mm-hmm. problem. Somehow we have a you know crisis of, oh, we don't right. have anywhere to build this school or do this or do that. We don't have anywhere to put the homeless. Well, just look at American cities from the sky. We have lots of space. It's not a space problem. 
Um, so sure. th- this, this is some of the spatial dimensions, I guess, of it. But um, yeah, then there's this sort of sexual question. And um, well, I wonder if we want to talk about that now or. Let's go ahead. You know, it's uh, <laughs> it's a tough one, but let's let's talk about it because, you know, it, it feels like a uh, it's the cause of a lot of uh, hurt. And it also seems like it's unnecessary in a lot of ways. Uh, so let's talk. Yeah, sure. Um, well, your listeners might be familiar with um, this notion of incels. Are, have you heard of this idea? <laughs> sure. Yeah. People, you know, who are maybe at the bottom of the social hierarchy or whatever, sexual hierarchy who, um, you know, it's a, an online subculture, you know, with lots of resentment brewing in it. Um, it. Something that we became aware of, I think, when when folks who belong to this demographic started, you know, shooting up schools and, and things like that, um, you know, doing. Oh, it is shocking. Yeah. I, if people who aren't aware of this, it's shocking the number of school shooters who are self-proclaimed incels. Yes, yes. Um, and I, so I became aware of it. Oh, I don't know, perhaps right after the, the election of Donald Trump, I think I was like, Oh, my God, like this alt right thing, I need to understand, like, what is this? Um, and so I did a yeah. deep dive on like, what all the different alt right branches, and I was already thinking about sexuality and whatnot at the time. And the I came across the incel fora. Um, and this was yeah, 2016. And I was struck by a couple things. So first, that um, in a way, I related to the feeling of, you know, I wish I had more sex, you know, and I, I don't identify as an incel, but sure. I certainly identify as someone who, at least at the time, felt like, you know, I wish I had yeah, had more sex than I was having. And certainly when I was a younger person, you know, young, young male, um, no one's stoked that you walked into the party, right, when you arrived. No one's like, oh, yes, yeah, so glad this 19-year-old <laughs> dude just showed up. Sure. Great. Um, every nightclub, every whatever. And I'm not trying to complain. I'm also not trying to compare that experience to the the horrible things that women go through in our society. But something that really struck me was that, um, the response, the progressive response to when the world started finding out about incels, the immediate response was, Oh, look how entitled these people are. And, uh, I, I can't deny the fact that, you know, the incel discourse is, you know, framed and quite entitled and, um, and yeah, deeply uh, regrettable um, terminology. And I'm not trying to, you know, to right. create some kind of solidarity of these folks. But but I think the fundamental worry that like, look, I live in a society that has made like having access to like sex and care impossible for me. Um, that's a problem we should take seriously. Um, and so there's yeah. there's some controversial discourse about this um, in the media. So people may have seen Ross do that. I think that's his name. Uh, the, the New York Times columnist uh, wrote this question about sort of um, people having a right to sex, asking whether people have a right to sex and something that the feminist uh, scholar Amia Srinivasan um, from Oxford wrote re- a really compelling piece on in the London Review of Books. Anyway, um, at the end of the day, I think people do not have a right to sex, but they have a right to live in a society that doesn't make sex artificially scarce. Um, huh. and that, to me, that's, that's it, a great, that's a great different way of looking at that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what I mean by that is, you know, we, we shouldn't make people change their individual behavior. It's more about trying to change like sort of cultural and social, social approaches to these things. And so one of the things I'm trying to do now, um, in my dissertation is to look at the production of sort of desirability criteria. So how we make certain people desirable and how that's those certain people that we make desirable are always like this scarce minority of people. So there's, you know, the Barbies mm-hmm. and the pens or whatever, um, the, sure. the ways, you know, we make desirability link up to, um, you know, oh, I don't know, uh, material abundance or, uh, yeah, wealth or status, um, it feels like one of these avenues that's producing a whole lot of artificial scarcity doesn't need to be there. Yes, 
Yeah, that's a great point. And it it's one of those things where it's tough, right? Because it's like, uh, there's so many, there's so many problematic uh, ways of looking at this that you get from the incel world. Um, and you want to, uh, temper those and dissuade those. And at the same time, you're looking at this and you're like, okay, a, like it's people that are hurting. Right. And let's see if we can help them. And then B like, this is a real pragmatic, like issue that we need to solve as a civilization. You know, if we want to reduce school shootings, if we want to like reduce, you know, sexual violence, if we want to, uh, you know, not have, um, like anytime you have like civil disruption, it's usually, uh, unemployed, angry men, like young men. Right. And so like, th- these are real urgent problems that we need to solve, even as, as sort of distasteful as sometimes they feel. I, I agree with you. Um, and yeah, one, so one of the things that's really disturbing about this sort of incel thing is the degree to which people blame women, uh, for their plight. And I think, uh, this was something that I really mm-hmm. wanted to, weigh in on as an historian. And one of the reasons why I've, I've pursued the project uh, that I am, which is to show that, yes, I think we can both take s- sexual scarcity seriously and still be feminist, right? Um, because it's not women's individual choices that should be on the table here. Um, it is cultural production of uh, desirability criteria, of expectations that that people should have for themselves uh so i don't know p- the pr- production of sort of social or sexual scarcity um and around purity sort of like sort of purity norms um i think it, we need to have a conversation about sort of monogamy as well there's like there's all sorts of interesting conversations that are being had about that um status and, and so forth but we we can't think of our problems today as just, oh, these are conflicts between individuals. That's a very Thatcherite uh, way to look at things. Thatcher famously said, you know, there's no society. It's just a, a bunch of individuals. Well, absolutely not. There is a society and society does shape um, how we interact with each other. You know, does that make sense? It does. It does. And it, you know, it's it shapes the way that we interact with each other. And it also carries these such strong framing sometimes. Like I look at these things where, Oftentimes there's a competitive lens and a like collaborative lens, or there's multiple different ways of looking at scenarios. And it feels like there is value in both. But if you just look through one, you end up to like at some really unfortunate places. And like you look at like incel uh, posts and, 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 and sort of writing, and it's all this like competitive frame, like you're always competing against everybody else. Uh, and if you aren't competing or if you're missing out on any opportunities, you're the sucker, right? And you see this all over the place where it's like, don't be the sucker, right? Don't be the, the, the person who's getting left out or at the bottom. And so you need to use as gnarly as tactics as everybody else is quote unquote using, right? And you also just see this scarcity mindset, right? Where it's like sometimes the scarcity is real, but when you look through that lens, that's all you see, right? Yeah. And so how do we start to change some of those framings, how some people are seeing what lenses they're using more, um, even when there is some kernel of truth to the ones that are less productive? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think the first way to, to think about it is just uh, to question how zero-sum we really need to be about specifically social and sexual dynamics. I mean, the great thing about... Um, sex and other social resources is that the more you have, the more there is. <laughs> it's not like food where the more you eat, the less there is, the more you have, the more there is. Um, and so, so, <laughs> fair. so social abundance, I think can, is totally possible. Um, 
it is totally possible because there's no inherent scarcity there. Um, I mean, there's a certain scarcity of time um, for sure. Uh, but it becomes scarce. It becomes made scarce. So when we when we decide, oh, this or that thing is desirable and everything else is undesirable, that that creates scarcity um, and it creates competition. Uh, you know, just to get a little bit into the to the monogamy thing, I think like we, we should look at the production of sort of choosiness. Um, so one of the reasons why people need to be super choosy with their mates or were convinced to be choosy with their mates was that um, that either they were economically dependent on their mates. So that's a big sort of issue, I think, with sort of old school patriarchy, right, is that, you know, male breadwinner, um, their desirability is going to be linked up with your ability to earn and, and whatever, uh, take care of family and so forth. Um, there's also just the fact that if you're in a monogamous relationship, you kind of need that person that you're going to be in that relationship with to be like, perfect. <laughs> um, and if they're not, then they're right. like, no, you're going to check every single box. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't matter so much. And I think those of us who practice sort of non-monogamous relationships have noticed, oh, it doesn't matter so much um, if someone takes all the boxes for us to hook up or to have a nice evening out or have this or have that. And it, and it doesn't disrupt any of my other stuff because I don't have agreements that would make make it disrupt those things. So um, I think that's that's like an interesting thing to think about uh, there. I will say there's actually a real big attachment in the, I don't want to make this about incels, but in, in the incel community is a real attachment or, or a, a nostalgia for monogamy. And that's because monogamy was meant to be like this idea of like everyone has their person. And so if you can enforce monogamy and they, there's actual calls for enforced monogamy, um, if everyone has their person, then you don't have to worry about it. Like, uh, but what, what they think is that the sexual revolution has basically set off this, this situation where, you know, only a few of us are having all the sex and then the rest of everybody is, is completely left down the cold. Um, and that's still, I think that's still, and there's also, they make all sorts of biological justifications for why that is. I don't think we need biological arguments here. I think we need cultural history, uh, to tell us, you know, under what conditions and for what reasons did, did we start really worrying about, um, you know, who our, who our partners were, how, how, um, how desirable they were according to sort of specific criteria and, and how did those things change over time? And, and it's really clear that those things changed. Yeah. Well, I find that, that, that way of thinking, um, you know, regardless of whether you're practicing monogamy or not, that, that sort of point of, uh, not, <laughs> not trying to make sure that you get a partner that checks every single box. Uh, I find relaxing that to be such a sort of relieving thing, right? Like when you start thinking about, no, like this box can get checked by like a good friend of mine or like this other box, like this need that I have in my life, uh, you know, can be provided by, you know, like, you know, and we're talking about things like, you know, emotional support or like when I've had a bad day, they, they, you know, talk to me about it. Or like when I'm really excited, they're like supportive of the things that I do, or like I can have deep intellectual conversations with them, right? Like it's nice yeah. to have a partner that checks all the boxes that you want. But as soon as you start, stop stressing so much that this one person is going to provide everything, I feel like that opens up a lot of possibility just in the different friendships and connections and different things that one has in their life. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, you know, maybe to generalize the idea a bit further, I think um, we can look at sort of lifestyles in a, in a similar way. Um, if you're being super competitive about... Um, I don't know, displaying your status, having the right model of car, the right sort of house in the right neighborhood, the right this, the right that. Um, that's a stressful pursuit. Um, and it's a stressful <laughs> it pursuit that no one can win because it is 
fundamentally about producing scarcity. One of the things I'm, I'm teaching a course right now on on consumer culture here at Cambridge and uh, to undergrads. And one of the things we talk about is this idea of the sort of constant production of the new. It's like you need this, um, you need the new sort of status, you need the latest thing, the latest that. Um, and, and it just creates an endless rat race. And, uh, and right. we don't need that to be the case. That does not need to be the case. Uh, we, we should be able to make things and have them be desirable forever, um, even if they move around. And so I think rather than, so I th we tend to think of things as like, so people need variation. I think that's worth saying right off, off the bat. Um, it seems that, that variation is a really important thing. Um, but unfortunately, our way of doing variation tends to be hierarchical. So we're always trying to outdo ourselves because say if you're doing monogamous relationships or whatever, you could say, okay, well, I had this girlfriend and she was hot, but I want a hotter girlfriend and I want a hotter, hotter girlfriend after that. Right. Or, um, you know, I had a nice house. Now I want a bigger house and a bigger house and a bigger house. Right. And, more and that is, that's a race to the bottom. Um, what we could have instead mm, yeah. is a more ambulatory approach that's less vertical and more horizontal and even planar, you might say, and less linear. So we drift, yeah. right? So I loved yeah. having that apartment that had a nice view. And now I love having this um, apartment that's, um, you know, near the water. And now I love to have this thing that, you know, is, is in, a, in a better climate or whatever, um, or an interesting you know, climate. So it becomes more about variation and variety and less about outdoing ourselves and, and, and sort of one-upping or leveling up, as they like to say. That makes a lot of sense. That reminds me of, um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Sam Harris's Moral Landscape. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, but it reminds me a little bit of that, of where it's like um, some of these things, you think about them by default linearly, but as soon as you start thinking about like a topology or a landscape of, in this case, sort of like, hedonic ideals or, you know, peaks of enjoyment. Um, the less linear you think about it, it seems like the less traps you find yourself in and the more appreciation you have for whatever specific circumstance you're in. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, so there's people, your listeners might be familiar with, um, the degrowth movement. And, uh, I think there's been sort of two main modalities of degrowth. I think one is like, okay, we got to prepare ourselves for scarcity, <laughs> But there's been a, a recent sort of trend, I think, in the in the academic discussions and activist discussions of degrowth, which is like, no, no, actually, we can like change our lifestyles to be less sort of consumptive and wasteful and so forth, and yet also make them better. And for me, like, that's the real sweet spot. I feel like in, in envisioning sort yeah. of, you know, the 21st century, it should be better than what we have now. Um, and you're also gonna, not going to get people in on your movement unless you're promising a world that's enjoyable. <laughs> like telling people to sacrifice isn't necessarily rallying. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we're, and this is this is where I think um, I, I struggle with sort of. Um, well, there's I feel like there's a few pe there's a few different angles in which people are like we need to return to the past, you know, back to simple living, and we need to or we need to become sort of more religious and, and, and spiritual and sort of, um, stop desiring, right? Like be more Puritan, stop desiring and so forth. Uh, I don't think that's the answer. I think it's just, we need to be clever about, um, how we, how we desire, um, and how we engage in pleasure. And so anyway, in this degrowth, uh, in the contemporary degrowth conversations, there's this idea of buen vivir, which is, um, it's less about accumulation of resources and status and luxury. And it's more about your proximity to others. Um, and the sort of rich dynamics that that you're surrounded by um and 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 you can roll aesthetics into this as well so you know um 
having yeah rich sensual experiences with the world around you that it's less about how much you have and about the less and more about the sort of quality of your life um and that just that feels so far from what we have now which is like sort of it's like protestant spaced out suburban life where there's a there's a real <laughs> um there's a real sort of paucity of of uh social connections and and aesthetic sensations it's like it's uh we're spaces as, as far out as possible and and yet right, it's not making yeah. it happen. it's kind of the opposite of the uh enjoyment of burning man where you're on top of <laughs> for for, for uh, the turn of phrase on top of each other uh literally and, and perhaps figuratively but the um like you know you're you got tents right next to each other you're you know living in the dirt like everything's crammed together in these little tiny neighborhoods and, and yet you are uh, enjoying yourself so much and so in some ways the sort of um, increase of communal space is is uh, is better instead of worse and you know maybe there's a period of time where you take it uh, like where it's enjoyable and then there's a period of time <laughs> where it's too long but right. it is uh, interesting contrast to the, the spaced out lawns and everything I totally agree. I, I mean, I love that about uh, Burning Man. I've had the real, uh, you know, privilege of going to Burning Man. It's you know not cheap to do, and it's sad that you know there's such a high barrier right. to entry for for experiencing this experimental temporary utopia. But let me just make a plug for. I think we need to experiment like that all over the place. You know, we should. You don't have to go to Burning Man to to experience some interesting temporary suspension of the normal. And I feel like we should. Yeah, we should all be playing yeah. with. Um, you know, just just taking a break from from everyday life and and, and experimenting with with something different and, and better and, and perhaps denser, uh, which, as you're pointing out, is a is a major feature of, of something like Burning Man. Yeah, and I want to make a note here, which is, you know, I made a joke about you know being on top of each other, and there is this there's yeah. this thing that makes me laugh about Burning Man, which is that um, when you hear it talked about, it's oftentimes talked about it through lenses like that, right? Like, oh. You're going to, you know, like go have crazy orgies or like, oh, like it's just about this sort of like pinnacle of how many like uh, substances you can do at like intense music parties or like how many people you can find that are attractive on the player. Like it, it's measured by these yardsticks uh, when people are looking at it externally, by which it doesn't seem like those are the yardsticks that make it enjoyable once you're there. Right. Yeah. Like it's not like this thing where you're maximizing the pleasure that you would otherwise have, but like in like a you know through this Burning Man thing, it's no the the enjoyment of it is the like almost rejection of these other metrics by which you uh, appreciate life. You know. Yes, uh, I totally agree. I mean, I think that that way of talking about Burning Man or relating to Burning Man is a function of its contrast to the rest of our lives. Um, so, uh, you know, this is a fundamental concept from like leisure studies, which I, I is a really interesting subfield of um, sort of sociology and history that's amazing, but it thinks about leisure um, and its role in our society. And one of the things that leisure studies scholars have, have pointed out is that, um, you know, the things we do in our free time, they're not just some autonomous thing that we just do like on its own for its own reason. They're, they're in structural relationship to what we do with the rest of our time. Um, and in that way, you can think of recreation as being inherently linked to work um, because it, you're spending your leisure time in yeah. a lot of ways recovering from what you do in work. And I feel sim similarly about Burning Man. It's not like, I think, you know, if we lived in a different society, it wouldn't be like Burning Man. Burning Man is specifically there to recover from default world attitudes. Um, 
And it makes me think of something I recently read about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, the, you know, the Soviet Union was had a, there were a lot of terrible things about the Soviet Union, and uh, I'm not trying to make an apology for it. But there was a moment, there's a window in time in the early in the, the first 10 years or so when there was a really interesting avant-garde there, and there's some really interesting thinking going on. And of course, Stalin crushed that and whatever. Um, but but one of the things that that people started to think about um, in the early Soviet Union was what would sex life look like. And so there were some super fascinating thinkers on sort of sexual liberation at the time. And and one of the things that they postulated was look, sexual liberation is not going to look like what Westerners think it's going to be, where we're just having sex in the streets all the time. Um, in fact, the only reason why sex is so sort of visible is because basically capitalism needs to like use it to sell goods all the time in advertising. This is something that we call parasexuality. Yeah. So you, it, the only reason it works is because people are so, so sexually deprived in your society that you can put, you know, tits on an advertisement or whatever, and they'll actually be stupid enough to buy it or desperate enough to buy it. Um, it doesn't work <laughs> sure. if people are actually sexually liberated. And so one of the, one of the things that people noticed was that in these, some of these social experiments that they're doing this in the Soviet Union, while sex was suddenly more open, um, it was also just like not a big thing. It just like, wasn't some crazy hedonistic orgy like you would think mm -hmm. it was. Um, and, and that to me, it's like, you know, liberation does not mean hypersexualization. It means, it means something a lot more balanced. Um, so anyway, I think about that sometimes when I think about Burning Man and, yeah. um, and your point about, you know, being on top of each other. Yeah, totally. Well, let's touch on hypersexualization in a second. Cause I have uh, some questions about this cyberpunk 2077 game. Uh, but before we go, before we do that, <laughs> I, uh, I wanted to, uh, the, uh, there were some jokes at, uh, with the Burning Man camp, uh, at some point where, um, you know, we should really just cut out all of the not fun parts of this. And, you know, rather than actually having a party, we should just have an event that's just a build strike where we, we just set up for it and then we tear it down. Because, you know, when you're thinking about the memories, oftentimes those are the ones that stand out the, the strongest are you working together with somebody else to build this damn structure all day long in the heat, you know? And I just thought that was such a funny reflip on, on all these festivals. It's just yeah. so much of it is the putting it down and tearing it apart. It's true. And I uh, think that has, you know, relevance for this post-work city project that um, I know that you wanted to talk about a bit. Um, Cause yeah, well, that's I, awesome. yeah, the parallels will become, let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Right before we, yeah. Right before we transition to that, I just wanted to talk about this a little bit. Have you played this uh, cyberpunk game 2077? Uh, yes. The barrier for entry, I, you know, I downloaded it and, uh, played a little bit of it. I couldn't get past the like basic training. I could never actually like enter the open world thing, but I, to be honest, I don't have much time for video games as, a, as an academic. So it, that's been hard, but uh, how, yeah. How is it? Well, I get, I get, uh, I have the special privilege of calling it research because <laughs> I oftentimes uh, work with these technologies, but the, uh, the thing that I found so fascinating about it. So it, for people who aren't familiar with this game, it's, you know, it's been in development for forever, but it's basically this, you know, hyper neon um, city, you know, it's in, set in 2077, uh, but everything is completely over the top. You know, it's as much adventure as you could possibly have. There's sex plastered all over everything. Like, you know, every billboard is hypersexualized. Um, you know, every sort of food ad is just, you know, huge burrito XXL, you know, it's got some of that idiocracy stuff. Um, but I found this little data pad in the game and one of these data pads sort of talked about the sort of like, um, sort of cultural or societal movement that sort of like led up to this like point in sci-fi, uh, history. And it was talking about this concept of, uh, neo-postmodernism. Uh, 
Mm. And I found this really fascinating where the thing that it basically was describing was this sort of movement that led up to the scenario in this game where uh, it seemed like people just started like becoming so jaded with like pleasure and desire where they just kind of said like, fuck it, let's turn all the dials to 11. Right. And so everything in their society became sort of just like turning the dials to 11, not caring about any sort of, um, you know, moderation or anything like that. And I found it to be such a like interesting cultural touch point on like, this is what it looks like if you turn all these things to 11. Like, do you mm-hmm. actually want this? Um, right. And I, I don't know, you know, I don't know if there's any thoughts that you have there, but it just, it felt so um, useful to have an example of like, this is what your brain says you want. And yet, do you really want it? You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, let me just say, I'm a, I'm an unwavering fan of the cyberpunk genre of science fiction. I think it's a very rich, very interesting um, uh, branch of just, yeah, imagining a near future dystopian um, scenario. Uh, and one of the things I think I find really enjoyable about it is actually it's utopian dimensions, which is that I, (laughs) you know, you know, people for, we, there's been a lot of cultural commentary on this, uh, among like literary scholars who, who said, look, this is supposed to be a dystopia. And yes, yet everyone's obsessed with it aesthetically. We love it. There's something so beautiful about it. And let me just say my personal aesthetic is super cyberpunk, um, (laughs) at this point in in my life. Um, and anyway, I think what it is, is that what the cyberpunk city seems to be offering is totally an opposite of like suburban sprawling, quiet, separated life. I mean, people are living on top of each other, um, you know, in this, in this extreme, um, vertical, you know, night neon, you know, rainy, it's not sunny. It's like, so it's like, it's in a lot of ways, it's like the shadow of like everything that, that like the mid century sort of consumer economy, uh, held up as desirable and good and so forth. But then it also is, as you say, commenting on these maybe contradictions or, or uh, problems. Right. And yes, problems that's exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and well, I'm not entirely convinced that um, in a world where, so, okay, cyberpunk is, is always, it's like basically like a capitalist dystopia, but I'm not convinced that if we actually had access <laughs> to the things we want and desire, that it would look like that. Um, that, that is, I think we could live rich, very dense lives, uh, where pleasure is available to us and we do other things, um, beyond just chasing Mm -hmm. our pleasure in a really dystopian and, um, shallow and yeah, kind of, uh, nihilistic way. I mean, that's, there's a real nihilism in the, in the genre. Um, and, and, and I think there, you know, this, this genre of science fiction came about being written by you know, men in the 1980s and 90s, right? Which, um, well, I'm just going to hazard a guess that um, they were not um, experiencing full um, access to their pleasures. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to speculate <laughs> about their sexual lives, but um, I'm going to guess that they that they weren't um, they weren't living in social abundance. And um, and I think if you were, it would really change the equation there. You may, you may have thoughts on that, but. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, it's um, yeah, yeah. That's interesting to think about. Uh, but anyway, I, I, you know, it's yeah, one of these games where it, uh, even if you don't play it, you know, go go, you know, obviously not for uh, sensitive eyes, but uh, it's worth taking a look at yeah. it because 
you know, some of these games these days, I, I don't, people oftentimes don't realize that uh, when these media properties, when these games come out, they sell more than like every Harry Potter book, every like, you know, Marvel movie. Um, these GTA fives and some of these games, they, they are just these massive, massive, uh, media projects and it's worth totally. checking, uh, some of these out. Well, uh, while we're plugging have a podcast on Far Cry five, cause that one was a ridiculous one, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, I didn't play it. Um, I, so I do have one of these VR headsets and, uh, I feel like it, VR has oh, come yeah. a long way this year, um, with the, the launch of the quest two, which is like a really great headset that's super affordable and also kind of creepy in terms of the data stuff and Facebook. But anyway, um, uh, you can link it up to your PC, and I have b- played this amazing. It's still in uh, trial mode, but this this game called Lo-Fi. It's another cyberpunk mm. game. Lo L O W F I, um, and it is beautiful and wonderful. It's another open world cyberpunk, you know, nighttime, rainy, neon city game where you can just fly around in a flying car. And anyway, for those people who, who like to play VR, I think that's a really interesting experience to uh, check out. And and right now, because it's in trial mode. You're not really doing, they're not on missions or anything. You're just like exploring this dark, weird city. And it's really, it's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And we could do a whole episode, I think, on VR and its relation to all this too, because you you start thinking about wire heading, right? That's uh, that's definitely where you get to. Um, Which is why I've been playing in the VR world, because I think think there is perhaps potentially something really interesting about, you know, as we've been talking about abundance, you know, really reducing the limits to things you can experience in your in your life uh, if you're doing it virtually. But yeah, hundred uh, percent. So before we move on to other topics, is there any sort of last thoughts or sort of prompts you might give people uh, to <laughs> to think about uh, hedonism a little bit more critically or or think about how we evolve that going forward? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been talking about it somewhat un, in a somewhat unstructured and you know conversational way, mm-hmm. but. Um, we put it in a clearer framework, I guess, on the Critical Hedonism's website. Um, so if, if this is something that interests you, I hope you would go visit that and also just be in touch with me. Um, I think you can find my email through the, the university. It, it, it's it's exciting and fun work, and I feel like we're only scratching the surface. Um, and I don't want I don't mean to make it just about sex. I think sex feels like one of the really obvious places where these kinds of interventions can be made. But there are a lot of other ways I think that uh, we can reimagine pleasure and desire and and, and so forth. And um, I really invite people who feel like they see avenues for doing so. Um, yeah, to be in touch. I, it's an open and ongoing and evolving project. Definitely appreciate that. All right, so let's uh, uh, let's move over to. You've talked about this idea of a post work city. Um, and you know, this is definitely connected through themes of abundance and, uh, what does it look like when we start to reimagine these things? Can you tell us a little bit about this project and, uh, how you think about the post-work city? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so the post-work city project is something I've been working on with a a friend and collaborator named Andra Bria. Um, and so the two of us, uh, thought, so it, I made this claim about how, you know, we need a sort of new template for like our aspirations for, for sort of how we, how we develop. Right. Um, and so the post-work city project is an attempt to, to do just that, um, to, to really ask people to imagine what cities could be like in a world where our, our time, uh, and space aren't totally dominated by, by work. Um, very much prompted by the pandemic where a lot of people, at least a lot of, you know, middle-class people are working from home. Um, and also lots of people are being thrown out of work, uh, and may very well not see their jobs come back. Unfortunately, I think we we see this sort of ratcheting effect every time we have a recession 
a lot of the people who get thrown out of work never get their jobs back. Um, and that's likely to happen again. And so anyway, um, thinking about the, there's a lot of people who already think about, okay, you know, what happens if we automate society and so on and so forth. But, but we really wanted to think about the spatial dimensions of this because, okay, if, if the world, let's say we automate production, right. And, and so jobs more or less start to start to go away what would make that doable or what would make that dystopian? And our argument is that if we don't reorient our cities to not just be about work and consumption, then it's going to be a dystopian disaster. But if we actually, you know, take this problem sort of by the antlers and uh, try to steer it um, and to do so by sort of reconfiguring our cities to make them accommodate people doing things beyond just working constantly and shopping constantly, um, then it actually could be a really beautiful and amazing thing. Uh, So, so, so yeah, sort of thinking about the the city as as the place that that might have to receive people who aren't um, who aren't traditionally employed becomes a design question. So the Post Work City project has been a prompt uh, that we've given to architects and designers and artists and just everyday people to submit to us um, their visions of what such a city could look like. Um, and it's and it's very much an exercise in sort of future craft, which is. Um, you know, trying to see this, this, the future um, and the future of cities in particular as something that we can actually shape rather than something that's just going to happen to us. Does that make sense? I like that. I like that. It, uh, you know, it's interesting you're talking about the sort of limited things that cities are oftentimes uh, tailored for because I think about this sometimes as like a game designer, you know, like I'm walking through, you know, wherever it is, San Francisco or whatever, and you're looking at the ground floor of these cities and it's like, okay, you've got restaurant, like retail, like finance, restaurant retail finance restaurant retail finance <laughs> or you know whatever it happens to be but yeah. it's just the, it's templated over and over again uh and you're like oh, you'd never design a city like that uh in a video game like there's nothing interesting here you know and uh man i i had we 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 had a short conversation before doing uh this podcast and that one of the quotes i wrote down was where are the trampolines <laughs> you know like yeah. Where, where are the fun things that we can be doing in these cities? And, um, you know, I'm curious, have you seen interesting things uh, proposed so far? I don't know if you guys are still judging or uh, like what what ways have you seen of sort of bringing a little bit more joy and whimsy into these spaces? Yeah, um, uh, you know, the trampoline quote. Um, yeah, I mean, I, this is very much influenced by my experiences at Burning Man. You know, it was like, oh, suddenly I'm in a city that's like not about maximizing money. And so mm-hmm. there's trampolines everywhere, ball pits and, you know, thing like skate parks and um, all sorts of fun stuff to do and places to meet people and things are designed specifically to make you meet people. And you can just go into bars and just drink there for free or whatever, right? It's like, it's amazing. And it's abundant. And it's, and it's fabulous. Um, I do want to say, that um, we also have some really pragmatic issues, like a huge proportion of our population just isn't housed or right. is housed in substandard conditions. And so I think, you know, I don't want to skirt those issues. But the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of people thinking about these things already. Um, we're, we're not necessarily solving them, but people are thinking about them. And I, as a thinker, um, you know, didn't want to didn't want to just dwell on pragmatic issues. And I think this can be something of a um, a self-limiting box that we can push put ourselves in, which is to imagine that the solutions to our problems are all just going to be pragmatic ones. I, you know, I, yeah. I think we need a fully new template of like what urban life is like. And that, um, that's not going to just be a pragmatic issue because people are, people like desirable things. Well, and it <laughs> becomes like a pragmatic the- issue, particularly when you have, um, 
you know, the scarcity of space in the city, right? Like if you can convince people that the thing that they want is not like, you'll be able to provide joy for them in ways that are other than them just having like, you know, an extremely expensive, you know, three-story house that's just theirs. You know what I mean? Yes, that's, that's totally right. Um, so yeah, you asked some, maybe what some of the things we've seen. So yeah. I might say something about the prompts that we gave. Sure. So we, we pulled people about, um, public spaces. So we asked what kinds of public spaces might exist in the place of offices and factories and stores that currently dominate the very center of our sort of urban downtowns and, and, and central districts, right? Um, so what other kinds of facilities and attractions might occupy time that's freed from work? And as we have right now, we have parks, which are like outdoor things. Um, but like, can we imagine indoor parks? Like what if most of the city was an indoor park? Um, like what might that look that's like? Cool. How might we, you know, mediate access to the spaces and whatnot. Um, you know, there'd still be issues and we'd still need to, uh, maintain things. Um, but, but it becomes an interesting, you know, question. Um, also questions about, um, you know, housing is a big one. So, uh, you know, there's a group, a really radical, interesting group in France called the situationists in the early 20th century. And one of their members, uh, Constant, uh, Neuenhaus, I think is his name, a Dutch name. Uh, he imagined this thing called, uh, new Babylon, which is a world where, all production is automated and um, people just run around and play all day. Um, and, and also they, they build the city as they go. So it's kind of like you were talking about, you know, strike and, and build. It, it's kind of like that, except like always, you're just always adding to the city and manipulating and changing. It. Um, and it's also always changing. And so no one in this scenario even has a home because the whole city is this sort of benevolent machine that just takes care of your needs. Like you need food, you can just get it out of one of the walls or whatever. Like it, it just dispenses it. Um, he doesn't worry about the details, but you know, those are technical issues. Um, but the, but the, but the prompt here is, is, you know, in a world where you don't have work, would you even have a home? Maybe you wouldn't need to have a home. Maybe you could just drift constantly. Like, like he says they did there. Um, there's also questions about regions. So, you know, we tend to live in one place because our work and our career and so forth is there. And so, you know, maybe, maybe we wouldn't even live in certain regions of the world anymore because, you know, we, we have robots mining that whatever's there we have, you know, yeah, we've automated those ports or whatever. Maybe we'd all live in, you know, beach resorts, who knows? Um, uh, so there's this regional question. There's also the question of whether we would actually live in one place or whether we'd be sort of migratory. Maybe we'd migrate with the seasons. Maybe we'd follow winter around. Maybe we'd follow summer around more likely. Um, uh, questions of like time too. So, um, you know, how would we spend our time if we weren't just working constantly? And where would we spend our time? Uh, but also, how would we think about the, the time in terms of our lifespan? So how would we plan our life? You know, if it's no longer about, okay, you, you grow up and get your education, and then you work, and then you retire, you know, maybe, maybe we think about the life, the sort of trajectory of a life differently. Um, there's also questions about sort of institutions and care and friendship and socialization. And, you know, where would care occur? Um, and where would socializing occur? Uh, all, all these sort of prompts um, were ones that we sort of gave to, to people. And I, it gives us a lot to think about. And so the, the whole po point of this, I should say, I don't think that we're necessarily about to enter a world where no one has a job. I think we're going to have low employment for a really long time before we have no employment, uh, if we ever indeed get there. The point of Futurecraft is to try to think critically about we about what we have now, which is like, how is what we have now so crappy? <laughs> it's so crappy. Like, where are the trampolines? I yeah. want the trampolines. Um, and, and besides that, I want everyone to have a freaking house. I mean, how are we in such a position? Um, and so in thinking about the post-work city, my hope 
is that we can also think about our current condition and how the hell we got here and how do we get out of it? Does that make sense? It does. It does. And it seems so critical. I mean, cities are these, they are the engines of innovation and they are the places that more and more people are being drawn to. And uh, looking at them as a unit uh, that we can change seems critical. <laughs> Absolutely critical this century. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, we, um, we have so many things that we've created as a, like a culture that we then take as nature and we just stop thinking of it as something that we made and can remake. Um, and I think cities are one of the major, major scenes of this. Uh, but it's, it's the same with some of the social institutions that we've been talking about earlier, desirability criteria and, and, and so forth. Um, and so, yeah, the whole purpose of this project is to try to shift aspirations and, and, and by getting people to be creative about what the future might look like, the hope is that people can also be creative about, um, you know, where, where we as a society want to sort of aim ourselves. Um, do we really want to build a world where everyone sort of is trying to be another suburbanite that re basically replicates the life of, you know, a life that's been lived many, many times? Yeah. Um, I don't think we do. And so well, the question is, what do we replace that with? And we need those visions because, you know, even you look at games like Cyberpunk, right? And like you have these things that uh, whether you call it a utopia or dystopia, I'm pretty sure I don't actually want to live there. Um, but we write a lot of sci-fi stories about places that we don't actually want to live. And it's really important yes. that we write ones about ones where we do actually want to live in them. You know what I mean? Yes. And, you know, that's the purpose of utopian fiction. But what I will say is too often utopian fiction is like quite sanitized and um, and there's something about the grit, I think, of cyberpunk as a dystopia that right. I think is really appealing to people. And so I, um, I recently wrote a piece about, um, you know, visions, future visions of future cities. And I, I was sort of posing, uh, like white cities and dark cities, um, and white cities are like any, if you type in like utopian futuristic city or whatever, or even if you just type in futuristic city to Google images, you'll find two types of images. One of them is a really well-ordered and planned city where buildings are really far apart. They're all white and really pointy usually. And it usually has a radial plan and there's like greenery everywhere. It's like a giant park with like lots of really nicely planned, uh, white, skyscrapers that are spaced apart in these big parks. And then the other vision that you'll see is like dark, rainy, neon, cyberpunk vibes um, that, that have this sort of thicket, what I would call a thicket quality. So um, white cities are planned. Everything that happens there was meant to happen there. Whereas the cyberpunk city is kind of wild and out of control because it's this sort of unplanned, haphazard, everything's on top of each other, everything's packed in uh, kind of thing. But there's something really rich and exciting about that. And I think what it is, is that it's you're, it feels like you can be an author of your own destiny rather than living in someone else's plan. And um, there's also something about, there's no way you could ever comprehend the culture or the even the urbanism of the cyberpunk city. It's just too complicated. And you get these sort of clearings in the sort of urban thicket where you can see it. You can see its complexity. It's not like it's just a really complex mass that you can't ever see or sort of behold at all you get these moments where you just look down an alleyway and you're just like how is there that much geometrical complexity on this one street yeah um and and it, and it always reminds you that there's just more out there um and i feel like this is one of the things that mitigates that nihilism that we were talking about which is like 
if you feel like you know all the pleasures, you've done all the things, you know, you've had all the sex, you've done all the drugs, and you're still not happy, well, that's a really horrible place to be. But if if you live in a very rich culture that is constantly changing and has tons of different things happening, none of, you could never have even scratched the surface of all the things that are available to you. And you're aware of that by the way that the city sort of pre- presents those options to you, as, as I, I say with this sort of idea of the thicket and the clearing in the thicket. Um, oh that presents lots of avenues. And so I think that starts to eliminate some of that existential angst um, and, and nihilistic sort of hedonistic uh, anxiety, I think that we have about, you know, a future where, oh, we're just all nutted out and tired and and uh, and still unfulfilled. I love that metaphor of lots of avenues. That's great. Um, mm. uh, yeah, so uh, one, one thing that occurred to me that, as you were talking about that was that it seems like there's a lot of value in creating uh, projects that function both within the system that we're currently in and within any future post-scarcity systems. Um, and right. I've seen a few places that seem to do that. So like one, so not Airbnb proper, but Airbnb experiences. Uh, I appreciate because yeah. it seems to do this where it's like just making it very easy for people to pay other people to like teach them how to do ink block painting or, you know, learn how to fly a drone. Um, and I, I'm curious if you've given any thought to like, you know, uh, projects that span those gaps. Uh, and if you have any sort of thoughts or examples or anything. Definitely. I mean, this feels super important. Um, you know, we don't want, just want to be in the business of, you know, oh, we're just going to create utopian schemes that then, oh, we'll leave it to someone else to figure out how we get there. I do think like we need, we do constantly need to think about how our projects sort of touch the real ground. And um, I'm a big fan of experimentation um, and and sort of trying to create this idea of like temporary autonomous zones. Uh, so like just being like, we're, look, look, let's just agree to suspend normal in this space amongst each other. And by the way, this doesn't work very well by yourself. So I think you should think about it as a transpersonal politics or experimentation or practice, uh, yeah. something that you do as part of a community. Um, but you say, you know, look, we're going to suspend normal for, let's say, 30 days and just live. Let's just try to live differently. Let's try to um, let's try to, you know, or let's have a party. Let's have a party where no one talks to each other with words and we have to communicate in other ways. Let's let's live together and decide that one person is going to be a dictator over all of our lives and see if it actually improves things for us. Like they get to like tell us and make, you can set boundaries or whatever. This is something that one of our community, um, uh, our communal houses in San Francisco actually did. Uh, they experiment with all sorts of governance uh, structures. Um or you could say, you know, with your friends, oh, I don't know. I and mean, the sky's the limit. I guess what I'm trying to say is, I, I don't have to give a million examples of this. We should we should play with things. It's time to hack what we're doing um, rather than just continue to go along um, following scripts that have been written for us. As, as um, oh, what's his name? Uh, oh, I'm not going to think of his name right now. But there's an amazing book called Program or Be Programmed. Maybe you've read it. Huh, I have not. That sounds interesting. Uh, I, I, I can't remember his name. Anyway, it's an amazing book, but, uh, the, the short of it is, you know, we should, I think it's time to try to write some of our own scripts. And, uh, and that means actually, so that doesn't mean just doing what we want. And that's, that's another important thing to put here. Um, yeah, Douglas Rushkoff, Douglas Rushkoff. Great. Um, great book. Uh, so I, I'm not trying to say that people should just do what they want. That's different than experimenting. The point of experimenting is is actually getting away from what you want in some ways. And and so so uh, um, you know, in a critical hedonism's frame, what we've done is we've had sort of events where we we sort of try to create a space where we suspend this or that thing, or we we 
we try to be experimental about a particular thing. So we might have a talk and then we actually just try to like, yeah, explore that together. Um, and I love this idea of sort of having, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s, they, they did this really well, actually. There was this idea of consciousness raising. You may have heard of it. Hmm. Uh, I've heard the phrase. Feminist and gay revolution groups created consciousness raising groups where they would get together and try to theorize their positions in the world, reconcile the different ways in which they were living life, wanting things, uh, feeling ashamed of things, and then changing that together as a group. Uh, and I feel like we need more consciousness raising groups today, not to get become more of our true selves or whatever, or to, you know, get more in touch with yeah, who we really are, who we really want to be. This isn't that's for me, that's not this is no longer a liberation project. It's more of a of a transformation project. Uh, how do we become something other than what we are now? How do we desire things that we don't desire right now? And and yeah, I think experimentation is a really great tool uh, for getting there. I like that a lot. Yeah, you add those creative constraints and it really helps you amplify what you can do. That's awesome. Right. Um, right. Great. Well, you know, I might uh, wrap us up here with just uh, one last question, which is uh, th- these, these projects seem so great and important and timely and involve, you know, the contributions of others, you know, to really amplify their success. And I'm curious right. sort of what you do and if you have any thoughts uh, for people who might also want to, you know, push forward new ways of thinking about how you kind of rally people to these causes. Uh, how does that kind of, you know, do you have any like thoughts on how that happens or how people sort of uh, get movement behind uh, projects like this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll say I've not been very good at this lately. I think I was better at it when, but before re-entering grad school, um, I had these two years between uh, graduate programs where uh, I was back in San Francisco, and I felt like thinking and doing were kind of all mashed together. Uh, the pandemic has also made this hard as well. But um, yeah, just been busy with a PhD. Um, but my hope, my hope is that this that this really is where this all goes. That that this can become you know, a culture of experimentation that we can, we can create cultures of experimentation. And I mean, people already are, let me just say that. Um, and I guess I see myself as, you know, an academic trying to make sense of that experimentation, trying to think about avenues that maybe are underexplored or underdeveloped, um, trying to think about the logics and the histories, um, that are relevant to such experimentation. Uh, and then hopefully, hopefully I'll have the time, you know, after doing this dissertation, for example, to, um, to connect it back to like what, what people can do. But, but I think, you know, as I said earlier, if, if people are interested in these ideas, I would love for them to get in touch. I, I, uh, I, I really, I, I don't want these to just become some, um, series of essays that just sort of die in a library somewhere, you know, as a, some fossil of some <laughs> possibility that someone thought about. Um, I, I, I really do want to, to be something that, that, um, you know, that matters materially in, in, in people's lives. And, and, um, and that's an, that's always a hard problem. It's always a hard problem because you're up against the fact that lots of people don't have the time, you know, to, to, to try new things or uh, the attention span or the, or the bandwidth um, or they, or they don't, you know, they have other pressing matters on their minds and I, I totally get that. Um, but I guess one of the things that I'll say is I think recessions become, they're horrible, destructive, awful things, but they also sometimes, um, not sometimes, they usually, um, also unleash a lot of interest in doing things differently. You know, we got the sharing economy out of the last recession. People were suddenly like, Oh, maybe there's a new way to kind of do capitalism 
but maybe the same way, but in a more exploitative way, as it turned out. But for a minute there, it, was, it felt like, oh, man, we're going to like build a whole new economy where we just are all using each other's stuff. And, it's, you know, I was definitely swept up with that fervor. I thought it was a very exciting. I think it's still a very good idea. Um, and, you know, perhaps we're in a similar situation where, you know, people are, what do they say? Um, something is the, the mother of all invention, Necessity. discomfort or whatever. Necessity. Yeah. Yes. People get thrown out of their their normal way of doing things by recessions and other emergencies. And I think we're going to see a period, a long period of experimentation, especially after this pandemic and with the recession and all these things. Um, and my hope is that that can be fertile soil for doing things um, in new, exciting, interesting, innovative ways. It seems like the consciousness of our, of our culture is shifting, that we're really disgruntled with the way we've been doing things. I think every time we hear people say, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to get us you know, back to normal, you know, thoughtful people, our ears prick up and we're like, are you sure about that? We wince a bit. Uh, yeah. We don't really want to go back to normal. Why don't we make something better? So I think a lot of people are on that, that bandwidth. The question is, you know, what will that be? And, um, I guess that's where I think new ideas can be useful and, 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 um, 100%. Yeah. anyway, be in touch if that's, if that's something you want to work on. Yeah. Too, people. And if I can <laughs> offer something, you know, something I've seen, uh, both both others in our community and and I've I've, I've heard tale uh, of you as well uh, doing that that seems to help push these things forward is by you know hosting events and gatherings and stuff like that that are inherently fun right there's like there's good ways of of giving people good times where they can also talk about these ideas and it seems like we have a very important uh, transition time here to start throwing uh, once we start getting some people vaccinated some new events to to brainstorm to think to take action to experiment on some of these new ideas so i hope and look forward yes yeah come, to, come back together but come back together in new ways and configurations and make it experimental why not why not we're in a new we're in a new millennium 100 well thanks so much eric this has been a absolute pleasure and uh, hope to talk again here soon. I'm really grateful that you had me. Thanks so much for taking the time to your listeners who actually listen to me ramble about some of this stuff. And, uh, you know, I look forward to being in touch with you and, and others in, in the future. It's, it's, it's a great opportunity. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Take care. Eric.